Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December the 7th. 2022 December the 7th of course is a day a date that will live in infamy in uh, 1941 um, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor and today is National Pearl Harbor Remembrance Day that was a singular crisis of course today we seem to live in what um, the Columbia University historian economic historian Adam Tooze calls a world of polycrisis uh, uh, uh talks about megastorms wildfires third world wars drought pandemic floods uh, this idea of uh, a polycrisis is one taken up by my old friend um, martin wolf um he writes about it how to think about policy in a age of polycrisis and I think Martin will be dealing with this in his new book that's coming out next year. I'm very excited about The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Martin's been on the show before, as Adam Tooze has. So Wolf and Tooze and, and many other serious thinkers address this issue of, of a polycrisis. How are we supposed to behave? What's the best way to respond, not just to a unique event like the bombing of Pearl Harbor, but these multiple crises? My guest today on the show is the co-author of an interesting new book, written by three uh, partners at McKinsey, a big consulting firm, Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in a Volatile World. His name is Aaron Desmet. He's joining us from Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, congratulations, Aaron, on the new book. Uh, do you concur with um, Wolf and, uh, and, and Tooze that we live in an age of polycrisis? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Increasingly, we see more and more um, crises are popping up that that not only that we didn't expect, but that uh, are interacting with other crises that we didn't expect, uh, creating a lot of volatility and uncertainty. I wonder, though, if we tend to over-dramatize it. Um, we've done lots of shows, for example, on the 1970s. It was also an age of polycrisis, economic, political, cultural wars. Doesn't every age uh, contain polycrisis? Are we particularly sensitive to the idea of crisis in the 2020? Um, I, I think part of what's happening is the world has become interconnected technologically, economically in a way that it wasn't in the 1970s. Uh, and you know, things can spread really quickly. Ideas, innovations, information, misinformation. In a hyper interconnected world, uh, you can get a lot more volatility where there's amplifying effects of these crises. So I, I don't think it's new that these crises exist. I think what's new is um, the ripple effects they have globally and how quickly they seem to be coming. It's a perfect world, of course, for McKinsey and for partners like you, your co-authors, Jacqueline Brassi and, and Mikhail Kreut. Um, uh, are also McKinsey partners. Uh, how would you place McKinsey in this world? It's no coincidence, of course, that the three authors of your new book, um, Deliberate Calm, are all McKinsey partners. Are you ideally positioned to make sense of this poly, this this world of polycrisis, uh, Aaron? 
Um, I, I don't know that we're uniquely positioned. Uh, I, I think this came about, um, in fact, it started uh, as an idea I was exploring um, in 2019, actually. Uh, I was doing some work um, with uh, one of our resiliency groups uh, that we get together to talk about resiliency. Um, and we, we, of course, didn't know that right around the corner was a global pandemic. Um, but even the McKinsey guys didn't know that you don't see around no, corners. You do not see around corners. Um, but I, I happened to be presenting with uh, a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard uh, named Dutch Leonard, and he was talking about um, the difference between uh, a routine emergency and a crisis of uncertainty. Um, and and I was sharing perspectives on decision making. Decision making. Um, when it's risky, um, but you know the risks versus decision-making when the risks are actually unknown. So and it's the Rumsfeld. Yeah, it is. I, I don't know them about great. known unknowns and unknown unknowns. <laughs> yeah. Um, and when 2020 uh, came around in March, um, a colleague of mine, Gemma Daria, uh, we were leading a lot of our work uh, at McKinsey on leadership. We wrote an article um, about leadership in a crisis. And we identified five things, and one of them was deliberate calm. And I had asked um, uh, Mikhail and, and Jackie to write a follow-up article about that point that we made, because this, this is particularly hard for leaders to do in a crisis. Um, it uh, stems from something we call the adaptability paradox, which is in moments where we most need to learn, change, transform, and adapt, we are often least able to do so. Is this the anti-Elon Musk thesis? <laughs> you don't um, go and sleep in the, you don't fire half your stuff and sleep in the factory and turn it into a war room? It, yes, it is It is definitely not that. Um, the, the fundamental though is, is neurological and biological. So when we are under stress, when we are under perceived threat, whether it's physical danger or financial or uh, uncertainty about a global pandemic or any number of other stressors, when the, when the situation is high stakes, we often react with what we know. We pull the levers we know how to pull. We react instinctively. Uh, and the instinctively is often uh, based on either hardwired biological instinct, like under true danger, fight, flight, or freeze, or under um, sort of habits or the, the muscle memory of what we've learned to do in situations. Uh, that, in some cases, serves us well. If you're in a high-pressure situation and the stakes are high and the thing to do is what you know well, um, that's, that can work. Uh, and this this goes a bit back to that idea of of a um, crisis of uncertainty versus a routine emergency. So, so this is in, the opposite essentially of Pearl Harbor. If 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 the Japanese Air Force bombs your ships, you really don't have any choice. You have to fight back. You have to react. You react with your training. You react with your training because that's all you know. But what happens when? what you've been trained to do doesn't work. And what you actually need to do is stop and pause and think. What, one of the examples we give in the book um, is uh, Captain Sully, 
Uh, I don't know if you yeah. remember. That. Yeah, we all know Captain Sully. He always pops up in these sorts of books. Yeah. The guy it, who was particularly calm in a storm. He was. And it, it's a great example because it's, it's, um, it's an example where had he just followed the training, it wouldn't have worked. So remind us, um, remind us, Aaron, of, of Captain Sully. Not everyone will know about him. So, so this this was a this was a story where a pilot, uh, a commercial airline pilot, Captain Sully. Uh, there's a movie made about it with Tom Hanks in it, which which is uh, quite a nice movie. Um, but the, the 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 simple facts are uh, p- the plane takes off. Um, uh, there's a there's a flock of birds hits an engine. The engine goes out, and you know, they're flying over uh, New York City at the time. Now, there are protocols for that. It's not the first time it's happened. It's happened before that there's been a bird strike and an engine has gone out. What was different about this situation is actually both engines got hit and both engines went out. And that was new and unique. And the air traffic control was following their protocols for shortly after takeoff when a bird strike knocks out an engine. That was the protocol they were following. And they were telling Sully to follow the same protocol. And he, he paused and realized that the protocol they were following did not match the situation that they were in. The situation he was in was both engines were out and he was told to turn around and come back. And had he turned around and come back, he would have been flying right back over New York City and very likely would have the plane would have gone down. Aaron, this and, this certainly underlines. I know my my old friend uh, Ni- Nicholas Carr's written about this too. It it underlines the value of human instinct um, in an age of AI because an AI wouldn't have made that decision. You can't turn AI would not have into an AI, can you? Exactly, exactly. But so, but it all. So, let's, let's, like, so we've we've got the Sally example. Give us. But, some, but let me use it to make a point. Oh, There's an important point here, which is you actually sometimes need to use your judgment to resist your instinct. You need to tap into deeper wisdom than your initial intuition would suggest. A lot of pilots would have just followed the protocol and they would have been listening to authority. An authority figure is saying, this is what you need to do. And they would have just said, okay, let me just do do what I've been trained to do, do what the authority figure is telling me to do. And this is where if you're in a high stakes situation that is new, that has some X factor of uncertainty that makes it different from what you've experienced before, you actually need to to pause and learn. And it is hardest to think creatively and innovate and learn and use judgment in those very high stakes situations where the uncertainty is actually making it even more uncomfortable and even more likely that you'll react with what you know rather than what you need to learn. It's ironic that three McKinsey people should be giving this quote unquote wisdom because, of course, many corporations come to you and pay massive amounts of money to to learn from McKinsey partners. Are you suggesting that perhaps corporate CEOs and other senior people shouldn't go to consultancies? They should work off their own instincts or, or maybe are you holders of a special kind of wisdom? Does people should always listen to you rather than airline uh, manuals? <laughs> um, I, I think, uh, regardless of w- whether you use consultants, if you use consultants, if you use executive coaches, if you use trainer, wh- whoever you might be partnering with to get help, it is also very advantageous to tap into your own learning and wisdom 
and and to also take stock of the situation. It, it's often not clear initially if this is in fact a situation that is that is known and which we've prepared for. for uh, Aaron, do we have some? I mean, COVID hit dramatically. We all remember almost where we were the moment it happened. It's rather like yep. 9/11. Do you have some positive and negative examples of of how we should and shouldn't have responded to COVID calmly, which you suggest is the best way, and then the opposite of calm, which I guess is frenetically? Um, yeah, I think I think for some people, probably panicked. Um, you had uh, people suddenly laying off workers because they're like, oh, I, we can't possibly stay in business. We better start laying off workers. We better shut things down. And some of those decisions turned out to be not so great decisions. Um, you had, uh, for example, uh, I'll, I'll give a positive example. Um, a, uh, a business that had actually several businesses in, in the retail space, um, retail stores, but also grocery stores, um, one, one of the things they did in the pandemic when they thought rather than lay off some of the retail workers when there was a lot less traffic or even stores were shut down entirely or lay off people from restaurants when nobody was coming in, they said, ah, maybe we should keep those workers and see if there's other work we need them to do. And it turned out they were able to, to very quickly pivot to delivery, delivery not only for some of the retail and restaurants, but for their grocery stores. And they were able to, to pivot more quickly because they didn't react in a knee-jerk way. And that's, pivot that's is the key word, I guess, here. What about when it comes to policy? Is the, the, Jap uh, the, the Chinese model of perhaps overreacting or the American model, especially under Trump, of underreacting, which makes more sense in the context of deliberate calm or neither or both? Uh, I will refrain from commenting on the political aspect of it, but I will comment on the 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 overreacting part. I mean, we we see um, in society there's oftentimes uh, an incivility of reaction. I, I think you often see it too on social media, where people don't yeah. before they before they tweet, if you will. To put it um, politely, Aaron, I mean that's yeah. the kind of way of thinking of talking about social media so so one of the one of the pieces of advice in the book is to first of all understand your own inner state am am i starting to panic sometimes people are starting to panic and they're not even consciously aware of it which which means you're even more likely to react without the thoughtfulness of let me pause and take a breath the other type of awareness is of the situation um it for those watching the World Cup, if you saw uh, any of the any of the games that, that went to uh, penalty kick shootout, everyone's going to guess you're a, a Dutch follower, but you're actually uh, originally Flemish Belgian, so you're probably a what an American fan or a, a Belgian fan. They're out, both, they're both of both. them. Yeah, they're both out, so it doesn't matter. Uh, but but yes, I was rooting for both. Um, uh, but on when you watch the the penalty kick shootouts, these are things that those folks have trained for. And the stakes of the situation can be unnerving, but one of the things you ask them to do is get back to what you know. Ignore distractions, ignore nagging doubts, ignore questions, just focus. Can you really do that? And isn't, I mean, let's, let's take the example of the, the penalty shootout between Morocco and Spain yesterday. The final Morocco yep. 
penalty. Yeah. There's a brilliant Penenka, but Penenkas are either incredibly brilliant or incredibly embarrassing, depending on whether or not the, the goalkeeper dives or not. It had that Penenka Morocco uh, penalty, had, had the uh, Spanish goalkeeper just stood there and caught the ball, he would have been severely embarrassed. Um, yes, but you also see times when people miss the target entirely and it hits the, it hits the <laughs> post, right? And so one of the things, if you look at what sports psychologists teach, they teach people to remove all that interference, remove the interference, calm down. There is, there is an element of luck where the skill of the goalkeeper, when you're taking a kick, of course, but, but what you're training people to do is get back to what you know how to do. You've trained for this, get rid of the interference. There, there's a great book, which, which I love called the inner game of tennis um, by Timothy Galway. And he talks about the difference between the good tennis players and the truly great is often an inner game in the mind. Yeah, bring out your inner Sally. We, we did a show with Ken Honda, a, a Japanese um, financial expert writer. He has a book called Happy Money, yep. The Japanese Art of Making Peace with Your Money. There seems to be a, a Zen quality to your, your philosophy of deliberate calm, how to learn yep. and lead in a volatile world. Do we need to learn from men like Ken Honda, from Japanese say, yeah. from, from the Zen tradition? I think so. I mean, you can learn. There's all kinds of other related traditions, whether you call it Zen or mindfulness or meditation. There's all kinds of things. There, there's an important element, though, that I want to get to, which is the advice of just ignore the nagging doubts, focus on what you know. In times of great uncertainty, that is not enough. In fact, that can be dangerous some of those nagging doubts might actually be pointing you in the direction of what you need to learn. So again, Sully as, as one example, but there are many others, those nagging doubts, sometimes you have to know when to pay attention to those and say, hold on, actually ignoring that nagging doubt and just doing what I know might be catastrophically bad in this situation. And that is the trick is it's not just the Zen, the internal Zen of my internal awareness and calmness. It's, being able to take stock of the situation I'm in and knowing when it's time to do what I know and when it's time to say, this is different. There is something new here that requires me to learn and adjust and evolve and adapt. And I can't just go back to what I know. And this is a lot of what we saw in the pandemic. There's a lot of people, um, even, even uh, CEOs who said, okay, when is this over? When are we going back? When are we going back to the way it was? And and for a lot of things, it's like you you probably aren't going back. You got to look. You got to lean and learn into a new future that we just don't know what it's going to be like. I I, I don't think many companies are going to see a hundred percent of their employees going back to the office five days a week. Maybe a few will, but I, I think most employers are still even now trying to figure out because they keep trying to go back and waiting till when do we go back and it's time to adapt and evolve into something new. Aaron, with all due respect, um, do we really need high-priced McKinsey consultants like yourself and your, your two colleagues to tell us this? I mean, isn't it kind of obvious? Uh, we got a book coming out next year with uh, Mariana Mazuchutu, a British economist, I'm sure you know her work, called The Big T con how the consulting industry weakens our business infantilizes our governments and warps our economies aren't big time 
expensive management consultancies like McKinsey and guys like you, aren't you just kind of stating the obvious? What is this? What are you saying that we don't already know? Uh, I, I don't think the book is saying a lot that you don't already know, except for how to do it. It's, it's, it's not, it's not difficult to figure out that this is important to adapt when you're in an uncertain new situation. The trick is how, because when the stakes are high, it's when we are least able to learn unless we are able to shift our mindset. And this is a, there's a step-by-step guide on how to do that. And I, I learned this not in the consulting world. I learned this through personal experience, um, through my life experience. Uh, I, I thought I was very adept at learning, figuring things out, adapting to change. And then I had um, a crisis, uh, a personal crisis in my family. And my, I did not react well to that crisis, at least not initially. I had to go through a lot of pain um, and, and learning to figure out how I was going to navigate my life situation. And, and that's more where this comes from than, than my consulting work. I do apply it at work. Uh, and, it, and it does apply. And I, I work with, with leaders uh, of all levels, of all different types of things. Yeah, you seem very calm. Do you ever raise your voice? Do you ever shout at anyone? <laughs> I have before. I have, I have, I, I, I rarely do it anymore though. That, that I have, I practiced the, the Zen tools pretty effectively now, but it was quite a journey for me. Um, when you go to the McKinsey site, there's a whole lot of stuff. Again, this is not particularly surprising about nature in the balance, what companies can do to restore natural capital. It's probably in our, in our age of polycrisis, the ultimate crisis is the environmental one. What, what does your book, Deliberate Calm, tell us about the way to address the challenge of global warming, which is so ubiquitous and yet also so hard to get your hands around? Um, it, it doesn't directly say anything about global warming specifically or climate change or a, any of that. What it does help with is when you have to fundamentally change and adapt it's often the case that we don't have the motivation to do so until the crisis is imminent. And when the crisis is imminent is when we start to panic and freak out and make bad decisions. So what this is helping us with is take stock, hopefully act before you're in a crisis. But when, when you do find yourself in a crisis of uncertainty, this will give you tools and the muscle, uh, both literally, but also figuratively, the mental muscle to know how to shift and adapt. Uh, and we explore different mindsets that are helpful in these situations, how to shift from a protection mindset to a learning mindset, how to be much more conscious of and aware of the state we're in and how we're responding so we can respond with choice. And that applies um, to almost any crisis, both both small and, and massive. Aaron, I'm always a bit skeptical of books written by more than one person. This one's a, a threesome, Brassy, DeSmet, and Croy. But I'm assuming that these crises are best um, confronted collectively. It's always better yeah. to, to it, it, in terms of, of being deliberately calm. It's much easier to do it in a room full of other people rather than on your own. Well, it can be. Uh, it can also have the opposite effect. So it, it is better in a group, but sometimes a group of people who are panicking and triggered and 
reacting badly actually trigger bad reactions in their colleagues. So you can get a, a, a virtuous cycle, but you can also get a vicious cycle. One of the chapters of the book talks about that. Um, I presume you haven't read it. I would encourage you to do so. I've looked through it, but uh, why, why do you presume that? Well, because some of the things you said about you're skeptical of, uh, the, some of the things you're skeptical of, I would imagine if you had read the book, you would be less skeptical. Well, except that it's my job to, to ask skeptical questions. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so what do you, in terms of polycrisis, is the 21st century, uh, Aaron, is it going to become more poly? Are the crises going to multiply? I have no idea. Um, I, it does appear that the pace of change, it feels faster. Technological disruption, political instability, the, the pay, at least to me, the pace of change feels like it's just getting faster and faster. And, uh, and that the interconnected world continues to be ever more volatile and uncertain. I, I don't know if that will get worse, but I think I feel like to me in a situation where these are skills that are going to be... Uh, in high demand. And in the corporate world, are there models? I mean, you, you mentioned Sully, but other models from the book, other examples of, of calm corporate leaders, CEOs who have, who have responded calmly in a crisis. I mentioned uh, Musk, who, of course, is the opposite, as well as, I guess, Steve Jobs. But they're iconic figures who have been enormously successful. Um, are there... Are there uh, um, are there are there are there CEOs who, for you, epitomize how to be deliberately calm and how to lead and learn in a volatile world? Um, there, there are some that I know. Uh, I, I won't name them. It's um, uh, out of. Uh, do you name any uh, in the book? I don't. I don't name any in the book. Uh, I what I what I will say is. This is not a personality trait. I mean, we often start to ascribe people who are just inherently Zen and calm and good at these things. And one of the things that um, the, the research shows and that we talk about in the book is these are skills that can be learned. And it's not about do you panic and react? It's are you able to notice it, catch yourself, pause, calm yourself down and make a different choice? Some people are naturally... Um, reactive. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The question is, can you notice it and channel it and be choiceful? So you're not reacting in a knee jerk way. You're reacting thoughtfully. I, I think most good CEOs actually have that quality. So passion's a bad thing. We need to repress anger. No, no, no. Not, I was saying the opposite. The passion is not a bad thing. What's a bad thing is when the passion is dictating our choices to us rather than us being able to channel those passions into, into smart decisions. So we need essentially, and this is very Zen, we need to master ourselves. Yeah, exactly. No drinks, no drugs, Aaron? No, not necessarily, as long as you're doing it with awareness. Uh, I, I, I'm not saying that you should never do it. One, one of the things that, if people are highly stressed out and they need a break and they want to wind down, if you want to use uh, a drink to do that, 
just be aware that that's a coping mechanism you're using. And if you keep getting stressed and keep using that coping mechanism, that might not be a thing that serves you well in the long run. So, so a lot of this book is around having the awareness to be in a point of choice with all the options on the table. It's certainly not about dampening passion. Uh, in fact, we would say, get in touch with your passion, get in touch with your emotion, notice them, feel them. That's a good thing. Just don't let your emotions be the master of the choices you make. And what about the role of the body and exercise? Uh, I was thinking a crisis, it's good to go out for a walk or perhaps sleep. Uh, there's a huge mind-body connection and um, being charged, not just emotionally and cognitively, but physically is hugely important. Um, and, and we have, we, part, part of the book actually talks about that, about recharging, not just uh, the mind uh, and the spirit, but the body. So you're, I assume you're a big fan of Ariana Huffington's sleep pods, the idea of getting enough sleep, sleeping at yeah, work. Absolutely. Uh, she's one of the people who endorsed our book. Uh, she endorses everyone's book, Aaron. You're not alone. <laughs> if I ever come across a business book that isn't endorsed by Ariana Huffington, I'm amazed. Uh, f finally, uh, congratulations then on the book, Deliberate Calm, How to Learn and Lead in a Volatile World. Um, what else, uh, Aaron, would you suggest we should read or watch or listen to, to calm ourselves down, to give us some distance, to control ourselves in the face of crisis? I think people um, can figure out and explore what works for them. Um, and there's all kinds of apps. Some of them are quite good. I, they don't work for everybody. Isn't uh, that sort of chicken and egg? I mean, you can only do that once you're calm. Well, that this is a bit this is a bit the challenge, but you can build the muscle. You can you can build the habit of taking deep breaths. Some of these things work within about six seconds to start calming you down if you just practice them and get in the habit of practicing them and get in the habit of noticing when you're starting to be in a tense or reactive or panicky or fearful or angry emotional state. You can put these into practice quite quite simply and easily, but it's a lot easier to do when you've been practicing. And as you say earlier, get off social media, get off Twitter, right? Absolutely. I mean, that, that would be my advice to each their own, but that would be my advice. Or if you are going to use it, if you, if 